Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. On this episode, my guest is Rasheen Murphy, the musician who is one half of Maloko, brought us dance floor smashes like The Time Is Now and Sing It Back. She went on to develop a successful career as a solo artist and today continues to make music and direct videos. We spoke to each other over the internet during the early days of the coronavirus lockdown in the UK about her career and she also shared with me the five things that would go into the Rasheen Murphy cabinet of curiosities. Hi, Rasheen. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm actually pretty good, considering. There's four of us here and we kind of entertain each other, really, and there's plenty to do. And um, I'm writing songs and it's quite nice to just stop for a bit and pause and everybody else stop and pause as well. It's nice. So the four of you is your uh, partner and your two children, I assume. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And so does that mean you're the sort of person who you find the isolation quite creatively stimulating in that case? Yeah, it, it has been. I mean, I, I, one of the things I was going to choose of the things that I love would be Ableton, which gives me the ability to write at home and to really go in deep and to perfect things the way that I want them to be perfected before they're presented to anybody and uh, you know, and I got into that quite recently, I suppose, in the last year or so. So the timing was good for that, because if <laughs> if I wasn't sort of up and running with that, I'd be trying to dig out the old cassette four track, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's good. So we're in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic. I should just state for the recording, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and how is it affecting your schedule for I think you had some tour dates uh had like a good few band dates and I had a few solo show dates as well which are um so one's like more of you know we're doing festivals and things like that the other one's more for clubs so we had a few good few of them that's all wiped out um but it will be rescheduled I'm not too worried about it excellent and how's all, and you've got your new album, is that still scheduled to come out? Yeah, it's hot, hot to come. Fantastic. Tell us about the album. Well, I mean, there's a lot of singles on this album. Probably by the time we finish, there'll be six, maybe even seven <laughs> singles on this record, you know. So that's, it's an old-fashioned album, you know, that's just all singles, really, and... Uh, Maybe one or two, not singles, but Jesus, they're just all bangers. And um, we're going to work on sort of creating interludes and refrains and and sort of, you know, like just the feeling of going through a story. So we'll create musical interludes and things in between tracks. It'll be a landscape. 
And are you going to be doing amazing videos for each of your, for these singles? Because well, I think... Videos are one thing that are on hold now. Videos and photo shoots and all that sort of stuff. You know, I can do this with you. There are things we can do for sure. But as far as if I need a video tomorrow or the next day, I'm going to have to make it here. And it'll have to be something I make looking at the grass growing in the, <laughs> the park or something. Tell me about growing up in Ireland and of all the musical influences that surrounded you what was your what was, what's your earliest musical memory oh here we go <laughs> <laughs> and those stories from the old days <laughs> from the rare old times when we all used to sing or sit around and sing um there was nothing else to do so yeah. people <laughs> a, bit, a, a bit like now uh, a bit like now, yeah. Well, no, not now, because we've got our computers and everything. But, um, yeah, there was nothing else to do except sing and uh, have a few drinks and live like there was no tomorrow. That's the kind of way our people were. Dad's a, a businessman, but he, he's a fantastic voice and very charismatic, my dad. I love singing. It could say to me as a kid, you know, um, say anything to me. And I bet you I know a song about it. It was like a game, you know. So yeah. he, he knew hundreds of parts of hundreds of songs. And um, but lots of people, lots of people of his generation were like that, you know. So, songs were in the. They were like a language, almost like a kind of. A rough language to kind of express ourselves, and uh, people had quite a vast. Uh, storage of of songs that they knew in the old days, that they could sing from top to bottom. So that's, that's, that's nothing to do with professional musicianship or anything like that. That's just everyone bursting out in song all the time. I did have an uncle who was a professional musician as well, who was a great influence on me. Um, and just to see someone living a life making music and see so much live music with his bands as, as a very young kid, um, it's second nature in a way, you know, without having to think about it it was just all around me and every time they did have a drink or whatever they'd all end up in his house and he'd be playing you know everything from sort of jazz to Rachmaninoff to you know country songs to it's pitch perfect he was an amazing musician amazing singer and um and he was a huge influence on me but I also as an artist as a kind of creative my mother's brother was um He's retired now, but he was a very, very important um, photographer, press photographer, Irish press photographer. And he was, you know, winning all the awards, lived in Dublin and uh, was uh, really into jazz, by the way, as well. Like, so he had thousands of records and he went to all the jazz gigs, shot all the jazz gigs. It's an amazing, you know, archive of photography. You know, on the music side, it's all jazz, all the greats. And the stuff that he did mostly for the papers was political stuff and things about the day. So he's got this kind of like archive that is just the most witty, sublime expression of sort of Ireland really turning into a modern country, you know. So uh, he was a big inspiration on the other side of the creativity and then on the other side i read that your mum was an antique dealer 
correct here. So, she, I hate people who say correct. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great eye, my mum. She didn't redo really Antique Dealing full time until we moved to Manchester, but we were always buying and selling stuff where they were. So sort of really kind of, it was a time where we had a couple of very important clocks, you know, in the house or that they, my father brought home one time a, the cockpit of a World War II bomber. The whole cockpit with the nose and everything of the, and we put it into the spare room. That was a bit scary, actually, because uh, it smelled of death, you know, and the chewing gum was on the back of the throttle and everything that had been, the guy who'd crashed it into the Wicklow Mountains. Very interesting. That was <laughs> within a couple of weeks. You know, just all this stuff came in and out of the house. Um, uh, they sold two paintings at Christie's, uh, Dutch Masters, my mother, uh, before we moved to Manchester that was found and bought from somebody who my father was doing the pub up. And my mother knew knew there were good things, you know, and there's a whole story about that, that, you know, so many people tried to buy the paintings off them and my nana stepped in and said, there's something about those paintings. And uh, my mum caught two guys trying to climb in the windows who'd, who'd done a sort of brief shake deal, handshake deal with my dad in the pub. And she threw them out. And uh, eventually, through taking them up to Dublin, no, we don't know what it is over here to that museum. No, we don't know. Take it to there, get it clean. Yes, we know. Take it now to Christie's because they're um, going to do a special Dutch master's sale. And we have the catalogue and everything. It's just amazing, you know. So we had that sort of thing where my dad could be selling Dutch masters one week or a lorry load of scrap lead the next <laughs> and he came up with lots of great ideas. No, they're very interesting. They're 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 they're, they're very interesting people. My, my parents. Did they pass on the art of thrifting down to you? Do you take pleasure in secondhand shopping yourself now? Oh God! I mean, that was my. It was just a fairyland going to Manchester from Arklow. You know, when we discovered that we could go to charity shops and. Uh, car boot sales and 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 uh, jumble sales and at that time you know it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now and things weren't all bought which they are now but certainly anything that i would have been into like 60s clothes mid-century furniture anything a bit spacey you know um anything a bit psychedelic it was all bought for nothing i mean we could buy it for you know i could dress myself head to toe 60s uh, for five quid at Preston Market, you know, flea market. And it, it, I went around with my mother to all those places when we were in Manchester. And it was just like, wow, we were the best dressed people in Heaton Moor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going back to the format of the podcast. You already mentioned one thing that inspires you and that you'd put into this magical cabinet that we have at the Matches Fashion Townhouse in Mayfair at Five Carlos Place. But I was wondering before we carry on, what was the second thing that you'd put in there? Well, um, I've, I'm going to talk about some marabou feather boas that I bought from, um, from Relic, from Stephen. So <laughs> I went in one day and I was like, what can I, what can I do, have to jazz myself up? And he was like, Oh, I've got these Maribu feathers. They've just got your name written all over them. And anyway, they're just really good quality. Three 
long pieces of feather boa. So when was this? This is a few years ago. And so basically, on the last tours, a few years ago, I made them into a hat. So I had this kind of like beret on underneath, mesh beret underneath. And then I pinned them to the hat, to the beret, and then all around me, um, chin as well. So it become this kind of like, really like a Muppet sort of manamana type vibe to it. Mm. And then and what uh, color are, what color they are, are shocking pink. And it really was a time a few years ago where a lot of shocking pink things found their way, you know, to me or cerise pink, as we used to call it in the 80s. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so those found their way to me. And then this magnificent shocking pink satin evening coat that I bought in um, in the vintage in, in Liberties cost a bit of money, but it was worth it. And uh, those two, those went together like a dream, absolutely marvellous. But lately I've re- reconfigured the, fe- the feathers. And they're very adaptable. And I've made a little pair of knickers out of them that I can slide on, on and off. Marabou knickers. Outfit while I'm uh, dancing in that. And then, yeah. Wow, so also, you can do all sorts with them. And they haven't fallen apart, which proves that they are extremely good. You know, anything like this has to be cured or whatever the hell it is. It has to be done right, you know. And because all your videos, you always have something spectacular on your person. And do you come up with the looks for those or do you work with a stylist? Do you have something in mind before you start that you want to, some sort of look that you want to develop for yourself? Yeah, it always. Uh, have a very clear creative direction for the styling. Most cases in the videos, uh, everyone's wearing my clothes, including me. Um, I use people like assistants, really. Uh, the, I, th- I think even the stylists that work with me be honest enough to tell you that nobody really styles me. Um, so that's just because I've gotten so used to it now and I've done it from the ground up, I've done it every which way, I've done it where I've had everything I wanted, I've done it where I've had nothing, and um, uh, I, I sort of feel I, I know my way around it, and, you know, the the, the concepts that have come since uh, Hairless Toys have been uh, totally from me, and the styling has been more or less totally from me as well, so either from my wardrobe or you know, a concept like, I mean, that the, all the sort of uh, high-vis stuff that I did. And um, and then, you know, I used a lot of masks. They were important part of a certain era for me. And that was really working with an artist called Christoph Coppins, who's a friend of mine. So th- th- these are the kind of things that happen to me rather than, certainly I never go into a meeting and go, right, you know, who am I going to be now? Tell me. <laughs> I'm ready when I go in. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's it's tricky because you know, many many times I'm I'm doing stuff and uh, I'm in a room with a green screen and I'm directing the video. Let's say and I'm dressed up as Raffaella Cura. In my mind, I'm perfectly that. And I'm standing there. And I'm basically you know a middle aged woman in there dressed up as an Italian disco queen in a green room. 
dancing, you know, terribly for the most part, but, you know, the best bits get into the video in the end, so, you know, it doesn't really matter. And um, and, and, and I often feel that, um, that I'm working with people who don't believe that it's going to be good. So that's that's what you have to kind of bear in mind when you take everything in in upon yourself people are used to doing it in a certain way and they're used to dealing with things going through certain filters you know so works also in music management you know they they, they feel more comfortable if they go through the, the filter of management even if management is just more or less telling you what the artists has said so it works like that in everything and especially when you're working for very small money and everything and then the vision is not right there in front of everyone and it's a fight to get it then you are sort of going a bit upwards from up the hill from what is this mad middle-aged woman doing that <laughs> like a little thing what has she got in mind at all? Are we going to make an idiot out of ourselves? You know, or with these photographs that I just did. What is this woman doing rolling around on all this PVC? You know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, and also I don't help myself because I go into the, I go into the situation going, come on, let's have it. Let's get in there. She wants it off. She's having it off. She wants it off. You know, to get it going and that. Try and get everyone smiling, but they're sort of standing there going, she's mental. And uh, it looks like rattle. So what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and your late for your, I've seen some of the artwork for your um, latest album or your latest work for, I think Narcissus they sent through. What about, how did you arrive at that look? It sort of feels quite 80s to me, a bit of like Stevie Nicks, Kate Bush vibes. Correct me if I'm wrong. It is quite razzle, actually. It's readers' wives, basically. <laughs> Uh, what made you what made you start thinking about that? About Razzle. Um yeah. <clears throat> you know, I've been looking at I've been drawn to a lot of uh, accounts on Instagram that are that are for want of a better word, sort of underground or alternative imagery from the underground, you know, alternative people. Um I don't, I read a I read an amazing article or interview with the DJ, I can't remember his name, it's terrible, but uh, who was the main DJ at Danceteria in New York. And he described a whole scene, a whole thing that was sort of built around creativity and music and all these kinds of music smashing together, all this sort of new wave and disco and house coming in and all the alternative music and it was all mixed up together and 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 you don't you read a lot in that kind of context where I was reading about that. You read a lot about the loft and you read a lot about um and you hear a lot about Paradise Garage, but people don't kind of talk a lot about dance theory as much anyway. And the other two are much more purist, they're much more tribal, they're much more black, gay, Latin, um wonderful incredible you know the the roots partly the roots of everything but also the danceteria thing is where that's what i came from which was it was an absolute melting pot and it was more transient for sure and less dedicated maybe and you can't um maybe you could say it's more uh shallow or facile or whatever to uh, mix it up and not just concentrate on things but <clears throat> there's a sort of edge to this that 
is exciting now, this kind of like idea of pushing boundaries, you know, looking at people like Susie Sue or looking at, you know, standing there with like dress like that, you know, and just sticking it up them, you know. And I wanted a bit of that. I wanted a bit of like, because at the end of the day, every time I have to come to make a video or an image, um, I have to try and find a reason for it, that there's some sort of extra thing other than just making a rapping for the music. The music, I'd like to think that actually the two things could, could the music definitely can live without the imagery. If you don't have good music, that when you're dealing with that, uh, it's, tr it's very, very difficult, I'm sure. But for me, personally, not blowing my own trumpet, but I've got good music, so I can throw any old imagery at it, actually, and it'll, it will sing, you know. Yeah. But I, I don't want to... I don't want to put imagery out there that doesn't have a soul, you know. Yeah. And that's my priority. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a priority, and it's not a bloody ego trip, you know. That is... I mean it. Yeah. She says as she's spread herself across some red PVC and... <laughs> 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 now what's the third thing you're going to talk about for your magical cabinet at five carlos play uh i'll take uh, braulio amado's 2018 compendium book of his work where he's a he's a graphic designer that i've been working with since 2018 and i'm uh, you know absolutely privileged to work with him i do think he's one of the best in the world actually and the book is Braulio Amado, 2018. He does them every year, yeah. So, but um, we're still waiting for 2019. I expect that I will be heavily featured in 2020. Anyway, he's amazing. Uh, do you know, did you ever have people in your life you just rely on? You know, you're like, will yeah. you do this for me? And will you do it right? And that's, he's magic like that, you know. So... I found him ser searching for kind of club graphics and uh, he does the uh, graphics for a club in Brooklyn and uh, we found all this work of his and it was just mind-blowing and then we got in touch with him and he did these incredible set of four 12 inches, every single one of them different, every part of every single one of them different, tries out every kind of style, you know, it's just exuberant, it's like taking the technology uh logically you know just using it in such a logical way to unlock everything anything you'd want you know and he's just brilliant what was it like when because you left ireland and i think when you were 12 and moved to um or you moved to manchester as a child with your parents um and they moved back and you remained there and lived there as a teenager were you on the rave scene no, well, I wasn't really, I didn't really like raves. By the time my mates started going to raves, I'd already been going to clubs in Manchester for a year and a half. And then they were all coming into the like sixth form college going, oh, we went to this rave and it's amazing, dancing all night, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah. So, and then, <laughs> then I went to a rave and I thought, this is a bit shit, you know, it's just like far too many idiots all in one place. <laughs> Uh, no, no, it wasn't. It was. 
I had this moment at one, the first rave I went to where they played the, you know, Frankie Knuckles at the end and mm. the light yeah. through the windows of the warehouse and blah. It was classic. But it didn't affect me in the way that it affects other people, if I'm going to be honest. The rave scene. And I never really enjoyed one afterwards. I don't like, like, 10,000 people in a room. I don't. Sorry. No, no but need to. Ten, you know, when you're invi- I'm inviting 10,000 people to come and see me, it's going to be brilliant. So, you know, don't. Yeah. <laughs> come to that, yeah. yeah. Come to that. I'll be there at that. Um, and then in you, so you formed Maloko. Let's talk about Maloko in, in, in 1994. I think you went to Sheffield after you were in Manchester. And you formed Maloko with Mark Bryden. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of like contextualizing it a bit because um, the other that how did you arrive at that sound because obviously Britpop was happening and there was such a specific scene happening in the UK at that time. Well, you know when when it came out, it was dumped in with trip trip hop, yeah, and a lot of yeah in with trip hop, and a lot of people felt really sort of maligned by it and I can understand that you know that he invented this sort of thing immediately you know around about three or four records it's like this thing trip-hop which is also a really bad name for anything yes um but but uh it was made totally in a bubble and it was made out of being a reactionary a little bit that's the way I was certainly um and he used that energy in me to kind of revitalize what he was doing, you know, and he he just when I met him, he had just done a big jazz uh, acid jazz record and put it out on acid jazz, and he spent a year, you know, you can imagine the complexity of those records with all those amazing musicians and you know and the songwriting and production and blah, 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 ambitious record, and he put it out on on acid jazz, and he told them about all the samples, but then. Uh, a couple of weeks after it was out, it got it got pulled and deleted because they hadn't cleared one of these samples. So he was kind of quite bitter about that when I met him. And I was quite bitter about acid jazz anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, that, you won't be doing that no more. Let's move on. And uh, as me mate Luke says, keep it moving. And uh, um, no, but uh, I also, you know, I think we both also felt We'd been going to clubs for a while, and he was a good bit older than me. He was 13 years older than me. Um, but we'd both been going to clubs for a while, and um, we'd both been into house music. And then we'd started to see it really repeat itself. And uh, wrongfully, I think there was almost like a sense of, well, that's not very interesting anymore. And um, let's not do that. Let's not do what we kind of just thought was almost an insult for on the floor you know it's like that was the first sort of few years where you heard that phrase four on the floor and it sounded like so brutally simplistic that you know it was a bit off-putting even though we'd been into that and he'd made loads of house music he'd made a couple of the first hits UK made house hits and so on so it was reactionary. It was like, well, we're not going to do this and we're not going to do that and we're not going to do. So what are we listening to? Oh, we're listening to P-Funk. We're listening to, you know, Can. We're listening to whatever it was. We were, you know, and that was what we felt was needed then. And um, 
and then then the sound of that first record is really as i've said before the sound of two people madly in love first stages of love found some kind of outlet by accident that was totally an amazing creative outlet which was just another expression of basically having it off and um and and it was you know I talk about it all the time, it gets a bit boring, it feels like a cliche, but it was beautiful, you know, it was just a gorgeous way to start and not start thinking, oh, you know, I've been dancing, I've been at dance class and singing class for the last 10 years, now's my chance, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't like that, you know. What else are you going to talk about of your insp- inspiration, your inspirational oh. things? Okay. Uh, how many have I done? Three. Okay. Uh, well, I'll do my hairless toy ring. Uh, I, I found this uh, toy on the ground like that had fallen off some doll or some... It was like an accessory for a doll and it was made out of opaque green rubber, very small, mm-hmm like a little um, a balloon dog, but it was a handbag, so it had a little handbag uh, strap on it. And I picked it up and I put it on my finger and it was just the most perfect little ring already. It was just perfect. So I just, I, I gave it to, to my friends there at Belmax and they sent it to the jeweler and he took a mold and we had it moulded in, in in very high quality gold, which I can't remember what uh, carry it was. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just going back to you and your career. So after Maloko broke up, I think it was 2000, and it was the end of your relationship with Mark. Um, and you went on to build a really massive solo career, obviously, and done several albums. But in everything I read about you, I think um, your second solo album, Overpowered, Seem, I got the sense, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that that means a lot to you, that album, and you seem to talk about it in very fondly. And Would you say that was a creative high point for you? Um, I do talk about it very fondly, but I do talk about Ruby Blue very fondly, but I do talk about all the Maloko records fondly as well, I think. So each one, it's a terrible cliche thing to say again, but each one's like a child and... You know, I put so much into every record that I make that I even sort of bristle a little bit, if you say. Mm, you know, mm. you like one more than the other. Because yeah. I sort of get a bit like, no, I don't. I like them all the same. <laughs> um, so, but Ruby Blue, you know, coming to the end of Maloko. Yeah. Just the way it started and everything, it didn't lead me to believe that I was going to be able to do it. Uh we came to London and we actually finished, both of us moved to London after we broke up. You and Mark, yeah. Yeah. And then we f- we made our last album in London. Very fancy. Fantastic. <laughs> Jesus, we had it all. We <laughs> Didn't we really have it all? Um, oh my, I'm so excited you just sang, just sang on the oh podcast. God. Has anyone else sang? Uh, well... I'm not, not a, you know, singer like oh, you. <laughs> Before the end of it. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 it was very difficult making that last album. 
but very amazing because we had mm. 50 piece string orchestra at certain point, uh, 50 piece orchestra at a certain point. And uh, we were, had half of like Metropolis Studios working, mm. you know, round the clock on this record. Half of it was booked out. You know, we had the mastering suites working, the mix suites working, live rooms going. We had yeah. so much and uh, it was just total, you know, you don't even know you're getting this privilege at the time. But when I think back, and anyway, so that felt like this huge crescendo and who knew what was going to happen later. And, and if I'd made the right decision, should I have been a bloody visual artist after all and not sort of took this chance? But Matthew Herbert, who I made my first solo album with, um, was such an incredibly relaxing, sort of almost zen-like person to work with logical, productive, um, open. And um, and we got very, very close, very, very quickly. And we sped through that first solo album of mine within six months. And um, never, never hear from him. Never hear from him now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. No, I mean, they're all special. They're all just super, super special. Like, all the uh, solo. I'm getting a tear in the eye thinking about it. Really special. So, uh, Overpowered started with Seiji. Um, young guy. Then he was very young. Um, here in West London. And, and I just used to go to him. And then the seeds of it grew there. And the rest of it, you know, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted, with whoever I wanted. I'd used to, I would go take one track and maybe wrote with Seiji, mix it over here, not like it, mix it over here, get vocal production over there, get somebody over there to play such and such a thing, you know, and and, and go and do string arrangements in, in Philadelphia with Larry Gold, you know, it was like, it was great too. Uh, um, but they're all great for different reasons. Then to come back and make those, Records with Eddie Stevens, who's my best friend. He's like my brother. And to discover that with him, to go on that journey, was, and to come out of the sort of shadows with him, with him holding my hand, was perfect, just perfect. Yeah. You know? uh, so, you know, no, no, the records aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect. But it's perfect. It's just been a really great little journey through records for me, making them. And they're all... They all dominate the eras of my life, those records. So how would you say that your new album, What? how is that a reflection of your life today? Or can you give us a bit of an idea of what to expect? Well, it's it's, it's very easy working with Parrot. It's easier than anyone. It's, it's simple. He's like clear. He knows what exactly he can do. How long it's going to take to do it and never loses focus is what it should be. And um, it's extremely easy with him, you know, it's just, this is gonna be the one I remember of like, I didn't have to do anything, I didn't have to work, you know, this will be the one, I just, <laughs> it just happens, this happens. I mean, obviously, it's been going for many, many years. The first single that will be on this record, the first single that ever came out, was 10 years ago, I think, so simulation. So it's been building, but 
which is kind of like there's just this it's just been the uh, the feedback of my life really this this music it just comes out of my life it just happens it's the scum on top of stuff and there it is and I've got it and I just have to skim it off now and put it into an album there you go bish bosh <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> brilliant and what is the last thing for that you wanted to talk about was this our fifth I think this is our fifth thing now yeah, yeah. fifth thing might have to be Piece of architecture, should I, can I? Yeah, yeah. So I have a fetish, I have an architect, architectural fetish. I love a bit of building, I love a bit of building. And um, it comes from me, in my first serious boyfriend, I ended up living with him, which I hated, I hated living with him, but it was lovely. Uh, was what? an architecture student who was in the last two years of his his studies are long studies he's had a year off and that's where I met him in Manchester because he was working in they have a year as a placement in a in an architectural place and he was working in Manchester I met him there and that's how I ended up going back to Manchester but after I met him we drove around Europe looking at architecture for six weeks one summer and he planned it out. He was very organised and methodical. He planned it out in such a marvellous way. And anyway, we drove down through France into Italy, uh, down to Greece, back up, a little bit of Spain, back into France, up again. And um, saw some amazing things. But the one thing that made me cry was Ronchon, which is uh, its church in Ronchon by Corbusier. And it is expressionist in its form. Um, it's an expressionist kind of version of, look, looked at one way, version of the Madonna and Child. And it has an almost like a handmade feel to it, but it's very sort of influential on brutalism, which is another thing that I really like. And... Um, yeah, it made me cry because he'd really poured his heart into it. It was obviously like a reactionary piece for him, you know. There was some sense of going the other way. It's almost sort of arts and crafts. Um, but it's also very modern. It's white, sculptural, sensual. And it was quiet there, you know. At that time, it was sort of late 80s. That's maybe, yeah, 89, 90, 90. Those sort of places, there's places that we went to were quiet. You know, I remember running around the, like, the, you know, the Pantheon and the Benothi, the you know, the things that I saw and going down to Greece and running around um, temples, you know, that stuck out into the middle, Poseidon's temple, you know, out in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, and there was no gates or anything around us. Just incredible things that we saw. But mostly modern architecture, mostly modern architecture. And also he was very much a sort of Jonathan Meads type where he'd be driving along the motorway and he'd point out pylons that he liked or, you know, we'd walk down the street, we'd look at sort of street furniture or the way that, um, uh, you know, a drain pipe was fixed. Yeah. 
get great joy out of it. And it's something that, you know, I've took with me. And obviously, I do love Jonathan Meads. Can I have him as one of the people I love? I think we can have a, can we have a photo of Jonathan Meads, maybe when he's wearing his sunglasses. He's always wearing his sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could put a photo of him in there, I think. But there's we? such joy in discovering that. There's such joy, you know, in just seeing. And people like that are great sort of wanderous guru Buddha men, really, in the way that they teach you to see. Although he, Jonathan Meads would hate that, I'm sure. I've tried to get, I've tried to listen to his uh, bio, autobiography, which he, I, I, I was told to get the, the audio book of it. And um, I do, I do struggle through that somewhat because that really gets down into the minutiae, you know, nothing happens in it, but he just tells you all these boring stories, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, but again, he loves it, you know, he just loves detail. And I think um, some DJs are like that, you know, Weatherall's like that too. Yeah, wow. like that. He, he, he loved detail. He, he showed you how to love detail that you didn't notice before. And um, they're, That's they're, a great comparison. I love that. Special people, special people. Um, can I just quickly ask you about fashion? Because um, when I told someone I was talk- going to be interviewing you, they said that, that you were there. I they said the feathers. I got the feathers in there. I know, but quick, because I someone said, "Oh, yeah, she, she she she's friends with fashion," in a you know in a nice way. And obviously, and I know you've um you did you did a, you were in a campaign for Gucci and you've performed you at Victor and Rolf and Balenciaga shows and parties. Um, why does the fashion industry love you so much? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I think uh, a lot. I'm an, I'm an exhibitionist. That's what I am. I'm not a fashionista. I'm an exhibitionist. <laughs> so also, or maybe also a fantasist. So a fashionista. I think maybe yeah. At that time, about overpowered and everything. But I was playing with fashion for a very deliberate reason to subvert it in some way or to speak in a kind of frequency that was a, a, a language that was being spoken, you know? So, um, but uh, I do love to dress up and I've always loved to dress up. And ever since I was a kid, I've been a total exi- exhibitionist and dressed up as a Chinese woman, waved out the window with all the naked dolls around me or dressed up as a, the, the Victorian ghost or in the 60s clothes or whatever it was, you know? It was all a... You know, like somebody didn't know they were a performance artist, basically. And um, so that's really what it's all been about. Mm. I do love clothes and I do love vintage clothes and I do love the history of clothing. And I do think it's borderline an art form, really. And I really appreciate it when it does become an art form. And I think it can. Mm. You can be tired with it as a sort of, you know, I don't want to become, as I said, everything that I do, I want, I want it to have a soul. And so if I put my name to something, I can stand by it forever. So I can say to me, kids, you know, don't sell me catalogue, you little bastards. It means something, <laughs> you know. So uh, things like that. But um, I love to dress up. 
I do buy clothes, you know. But I have to say my favourite piece of clothing now is my Architrex anorak, which just is the most glamorous thing. I put it on, it's the most marvellous colour. And it's technically uh, perfect. And uh, I just feel we don't, you know, without, I'm not normcore. Although, uh, I do quite like normcore, actually. I like it as a vibe. Um, but uh, I do think that uh, things are changing for the fashion world and they're going to have to really change. And just before we finish, what else are you planning other than your album coming out and your concerts, which hopefully are, some of them at least, are going to still be going ahead later on this year? Are you, do you have any other projects in the pipeline? Are you directing anything else? Right now, I'm just writing, 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 and it's flowing really good. And I've got like three projects on the go. They're all amazing. I've got to finish this one, which isn't far off, this album. Um, and then I've got two other extremely interesting developments going on, but I can't talk about them, but they're really exciting. And I'm just get like super, I'm just loving this and loving like not having a reason to do much else. Fantastic. All right. Well, good luck with it all. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing that with us. It was a pleasure talking to you so much. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag 5CarlosPlace. Thanks for listening.